You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. I want to address another objection that is commonly raised whenever we talk about Jesus and nonviolence, and that is that if Jesus did teach nonviolence, why does the rest of the Bible seem to endorse or even command, at times, violence? Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. This is episode 300, and our title is A Primer on Self-Affirming Nonviolence, Part 7. This week's episode is quite a milestone. This is our 300th episode. And I want to take this opportunity to ask you for your support of Renewed Heart Ministries so we can continue our work. Renewed Heart Ministries is a nonprofit organization working for a world of love and justice, and we need your support to continue bringing the kind of resources and analysis that RHM provides. Intersections between faith, love, compassion, and justice, they're needed right now more than ever. Help Christians be better humans. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Renewed Heart Ministries today. And to do so, just go to our website at RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate on the top right. Or if you prefer to make a donation by mail, our address is Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And to those of you out there who are already supporting this ministry and supporting our work, I want to say thank you. We could not continue you being a voice for change both within the church and within our larger society uh, without your partnership. This week I want to address another objection that is commonly raised whenever we talk about Jesus and nonviolence, and that is that if Jesus did teach nonviolence, why does the rest of the Bible seem to endorse or even command at times violence. Now, I agree with Philip Jenkins. He is author of the book, Laying Down the Sword, uh, that we cannot, we must not ignore the Bible's violent verses. Uh, Christians have repeatedly used the violent passages and commands of the Bible as a basis for their actions during the last two millennia, making Christianity the most violent world religion to date. Uh, yet before the Roman Empire embraced the Christian religion, Christianity, it was a religion actually of pacifists. Uh, they believed that Jesus taught his followers to practice some form of nonviolence. And you can see part one and part two of this series where we, we showed that in detail. So what do we do with the violence of the Bible? First, we need to be honest about it. The Bible to which the Jesus story belongs is a vi very violent book overall. From Genesis to Revelation, we are accosted with violence, both human and, and divine. And second, we need to understand the social political context of Jesus's nonviolence, uh, especially within the Jewish society uh, of the first century that was under a very heavy-handed Roman control. Jesus had options for, for what form his resistance to injustice would take. Uh, he chose nonviolent, self-affirming resistance as his means of change. It, Jesus chose to embrace and to teach his followers 
nonviolent forms of of resistance, resistance that forms of resistance that some first century Jewish resistance efforts were already uh, using. In his volume, The Greatest Prayer, Rediscovering the Revolutionary Message of the Lord's Prayer, John Dominic Crossan, he shares a brief history of violent and nonviolent Jewish resistance movements within the culture uh, that the gospel stories were written. And three significant Jewish rebellions, they stand out in that context. The first was the Judas Rebellion. It was under the reign of the Roman Imperial Augustus. It took place in Sephoris in about 4 BCE. And Josephus tells us how Rome how it responded to this rebellion. The Roman governor in Syria, Varus, he, he, he had first, and, and this is from Josephus, committed part of the soldiers to his son and to a friend of his and sent them upon an expedition to, into Galilee, which lies in the neighborhood of Ptolemus, who, <clears throat> who had made an attack upon the enemy and put them to flight and took Sephorus and made its inhabitants slaves and burnt the city. Varus He goes on to say, uh, then marched on to Jerusalem. He sent part of his army into the country uh, to seek out those who had been the authors of the revolt. And and, and when they were discovered, he punished some of of them uh, that were uh, the most guilty. Um, He had them crucified, and some he just dismissed. But but the number of those, according to Josephus, that were crucified on this account were 2,000. So think of the psychological damage to the rest of the population population, seeing 2,000 crosses with rebels crucified on them uh, along the Jewish countryside. What message would this have sent to the rest of the population? Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, she reminds us in the book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, page 171. She says, crucifixion was a stand your ground type of punishment for the treasonous offense of violating the rule of Roman law and order. And the second major Jewish rebellion which was during the time uh, uh, that the Gospels were written, was the the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 69 CE. Uh, This was under the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, And this ended, this rebellion ended in the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself was burned to the ground. And then the third rebellion, which was really, uh, in many historical scholars' opinion, much worse than the one in, in 70 CE. The third rebellion was the Barcoba Revolt in 132 to 136 CE. Rome killed more than half a million Jews in this war, and more died from starvation and disease. And Rome also sold Jewish war captives, uh, the, the ones that they actually captured, into slavery. And you can, I'll, I'll give you a reference to that in this week's e-site. But uh, so great was the devastation from, from Rome's backlash against this third rebellion. Joan Taylor states that the crucial date for what can only be described as genocide and the devastation of the Jews and Judaism within central Judea was 135 CE and not, as usually assumed, 70 CE, despite the siege of Jerusalem and the temple's destruction. And again, that's on her, that's in her book, The Essenes, the Scrolls, and the Dead Sea, uh, page 243. 
But but however bad 70 CE was, 135 was even worse. We have to understand Jesus' teachings on nonviolence in terms of the historical reality that the Jewish people picking up the sword against Rome that would not have been an act of liberation, but an act of suicide. Jesus would have grown up in the wake of the destruction of that first Jewish rebellion that we discussed. And his nonviolence held thriving and surviving intention with liberation. What good is liberation if you're not around to enjoy it or to experience it, or if you your people are wiped out as a result of it? Um, not, not just individually, but collectively. But what about those first century uh, nonviolent resistance movements that we spoke about earlier? Nonviolent resistance movements, they were much less popular, but they were also used by the Jewish people during this time. And we'll consider two that we actually have record of. The first is the Ensigns incident in 26 CE. And if Jesus had been on the fence before emerging in Galilee as a teacher of nonviolence as to what form his resistance against injustice would take, this incident, it, it took place just before his ministry began, and it could have very well influenced his thinking on the potential success of nonviolent resistance. Josephus tells us, as procurator of Judea, Tiberius sent Pilate, who during the night, secretly and undercover, conveyed to Jerusalem the images of Caesar known as standards. When, day, when the day dawned, this caused great excitement among the Jews, for those who were near were amazed at the sight, which meant that their laws had been trampled on. They do not permit any graven image to be set up in the city, and an angry city mob was joined by a huge influx of people from the country. They rushed off to Pilate in Caesarea and begged him to remove the standards from Jerusalem and to respect their ancient customs. When Pilate refused, they, they fell prone all around his house and remained motionless for five days and nights. The next day, Pilate took his seat on the tribunal in the great stadium and summoned the mob on the pretext that he was ready to give them an answer. Instead, he gave a prearranged signal to the soldiers to surround the Jews in full armor, and the troops formed <clears throat> excuse me, a ring three deep. The Jews were dumbfounded at the unexpected sight, but Pilate declared that he would cut them to pieces unless they accept the images of Caesar nodded to the soldiers to bear their swords. At this, the Jews, as though by agreement, fell to the ground in a body, bent their necks, shouting that they were ready to be killed, then transgressed the law. Amazed at the intensity of their religious fervor, Pilate ordered the standards to be removed from Jerusalem forthwith. And this, the second example of Jewish uh, nonviolent resistance is the incident over the statue of, of Gaius Caligula uh, that Caligula attempted to erect actually not in Jerusalem, but in the very Temple of Jerusalem in 40 CE. And the following again is Josephus's account on the mass demonstration that took place as a response. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of Jews came to Petronius at Ptolemus with a petition not to use force to make them transgress and violate their ancestral code. They said, if you propose at all, 
at all costs to set up the image. Slay us first before you carry out these resolutions, for it is not possible for us to survive and to behold actions that are forbidden for by uh, forbidden us by the decision both of our lawgiver and of our ancestors. In order to preserve our ancestral code, we shall patiently endure what may be in store for us, for God will stand by us. Fortune, moreover, moreover, is wont to veer now toward one side, now toward the other in human affairs. Petronas saw that they were determined and that it would be impossible to carry out Gaius's order without great conflict and slaughter. He went to Tiberias to determine the situation of the Jews there, and again... Many tens of thousands faced Petronius <clears throat> on his arrival. <clears throat> they besought him to not put up the statue. Will you then go to war with Caesar, regardless of his resources and your own weakness, he asked? On no account will we fight, they said, but we will die sooner than violate our laws. The falling on their faces and baring their throats, they declared that they were ready to be slain. They continued to make these supplications for 40 days. Furthermore, they neglected their fields, even though this was the time to sow the seed, for they showed a stubborn determination and readiness to die rather than see the image erected. The members of the royal family and the civic leaders appealed to Petronius to refrain from the plan and instead to write Gaius, telling how incurable was their opposition to receiving the statue and how they had left their fields to sit as a protest, and that they did not choose war since they could not fight a war, but would be glad to die sooner than transgress their customs, and that since the land was unsown, there would be no harvest and no tribute. They brought pressure to bear upon him in every way and employed every device to make their plea effective. Petronius was influenced by their plea and saw the stubborn determination of the Jews and thought it was would be terrible to bring death on so many tens of thousands of people. He thought it best to risk sending a letter to Gaius. Perhaps he might even convince him to cancel the order. If not, he would undertake war against the Jews, and thus Petronius decided to recognize the cogency of the plea of the petitioners. And that's from Antiquities uh, 18, uh, 261 through 309. Again, this is the landscape upon which the, the gospel stories were written. The early Jesus community, which wrote the gospels, chose the path of, of nonviolence. How did early Christianity reconcile the ethic of nonviolence then with the rest of their violent sacred text? Well, let's stop for a, a moment and first ask the same question of ourselves. Have you ever felt that in order to do what was right and ethical, you had to go against your understanding of what you believed your sacred text taught. Remember, our sacred text can be eternal while our interpretations are temporary. We must learn to distinguish between our sacred text and our interpretations of them. And we can choose to allow older destructive interpretations that do harm, to, especially to marginalized communities, to give way to new life-giving interpretations for everyone, the marginalized included. This is actually the story of early Christianity. To do what they believed was right, early Christians had to go against their, their understanding of what they believed their sacred text had previously taught. They created, they discovered new ways of interpreting their sacred text, and those new interpretations were informed by the teachings of Jesus. Uh, we see a, a, another 
illustration of this in the first verses of the uh, of the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various forms by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by, by a son who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So new ways of interpreting their sacred text they emerge to replace old interpretations and old ways of understanding the text. And I'm sure this was just as unsettling for those back then who didn't like change as it is for certain Christians today. And I have to confess too, I deeply wrestle with the violence that I see in our sacred text, the the Bible. A lot of Christian authors, they try and justify the violence in the Bible, conflating it with punitive or or preventative justice. And, And their goal is to make that violence look fair or the lesser of two evils. And and I admire their efforts. They're, They're working to try and make these passages look less ugly, but they really don't solve my problem with biblical violence. There is a world of difference between reconciling the violence of the Bible with justice and reconciling the violence of the Bible with Jesus and his teachings on nonviolence. One may be able to justify a certain example of violence in our sacred text, but the Jesus of the Gospels didn't teach justified violence, or what is today called just war theory. The Jesus of the Gospels taught resistance that was self-affirming and nonviolent. And the moral standard for a Jesus follower or a follower of Jesus, it's not the Bible. It's not even the Ten Commandments. It's not even our interpretations of the Gospels. The Jesus we claim to follow taught that a tree is known by its fruit. This means that we can know whether our interpretation of sacred text is harmful or life-giving by the fruit that that interpretation produces. Is our understanding of certain stories and passages, is it producing life, especially for the least of these, or is it harming others? The moral standard for a Jesus follower, according to Jesus, is to do no harm and to treat others the way you yourself would like to be treated. This series is a call to all of those who claim to follow the Jesus of the Gospels to return to what he taught, especially in relation to violence. And we bump into what we could interpret as as biblical endorsements of or interpretations of violence or, or biblically mandated violence. We have to hold those passages as secondary to Jesus and his rejection of violence in the Gospels. Last week, as the United States remembered the events of 9-11, a friend of mine who's a pastor in California, Daniel Weissong, he posted this relevant reminder on Facebook. I'll put a link to it in the e-site, but this is what he wrote. My hope in remembering 9-11 is that we would learn the lessons that killed people, that killing people is horrible. The 2,996 people who died on 9-11-2001 shouldn't have nor should the 7,000 U.S. service members that died in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, nor should the over 100,000 police and guard members, nor should the over 300,000 Iraqi and Afghani civilians. Every single one of those lives lost is a tragedy of equal proportion. If we wish to honor the memory of those who have been killed, it can only be by remembering that violence is horrible and remembering that violence begets violence and intentionally moving toward a world with less killing. We honor the lives. We honor their lives by learning and remembering 
that we will never create the world we all want. The world we all want to live in by killing enough people. May the followers of Jesus come to be known in our society today as those who reject violence once again. Heart group application, in what ways has uh, using the gospel stories of Jesus caused you to have to reinterpret other parts of of, uh, your sacred text and, and share those experiences with your group? Number two, are there passages or stories in the Bible that you feel you can't redeem, you can't reclaim them? And share some of these with the group, as well as why these passages trouble you. And then number three, how has interpreting the Bible through the lens of the Jesus story, how has it changed the ethics by which you you live or affirm the ethics of peace that you're already living and share that uh, with your group? Thanks for checking in with us this week. Wherever you are, keep choosing love, compassion, action, reparative and distributive justice. Another world is possible if we choose it. Don't forget, we need your support here at Renewed Heart Ministries to continue making a difference. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Thank you.